I asked her in advance if I could tell this story. So before you start asking yourselves the questions, yes, I asked her. She told me, no, I wasn't allowed to tell this story, but I'm going to tell it on her anyway. Uh, it, it, it all started, I was sitting, I was sitting at a picnic table uh, outside of a church in Newcastle, spending some quality time with some of my grandkids. Now, I know what you're thinking, I, and you're right, I'm not old enough to have grandchildren. I didn't say grandchildren. I was out there with my grandkids. I do have grandkids. In fact, this year, nine of them, this spring, nine grandkids were born out at the Burrow Brothers goat farm. And uh, three of those nine grandkids are being bottle raised. So that's why I had them with me. Um, it was Friday. My kids are in a homeschool co-op on that day. And that's why we were at that church in Newcastle. And uh, the goats went along with me because we had to feed them every four hours. And so we we're sitting out at the picnic tables outside of this church in Newcastle. It was right after choir got over. It was after co-op finished up, uh, about an hour before play practice was going to begin. So we were eating a picnic lunch out there at the picnic tables with three little baby goats. And who doesn't love baby goats? And people started coming out to see the baby goats. And Mackenzie was in high heavens. Uh, she was showing the baby goats off to all of her friends and answering absolutely everybody's questions about these goats. And, and one of the mothers who'd come out to look at the baby goats started asking her questions and asked her at one point, asked her, do you have any other animals? <laughs> do we have any other animals? So Mackenzie, oh yeah, we have, we've got chickens and we've got ducks, we've got quail, we've got guinea pigs, cats, we've got a dog, and, and a rabbit, she said. Our rabbits just had babies. What kind of rabbits do you have, the lady said. She said, well, um, not sure. I do know this. They're not meat rabbits. They're dairy rabbits. <laughs> now, that's more of a story about me than it is about McKinsey. I probably... I better give some context to that conversation. Um, our family has been working on trying to raise some of our own food. That's why we have chicken and ducks for eggs and goats for milk. And now we're working on rabbits for meat. And knowing we were going to get rabbits and eventually eat rabbits, I wanted to make sure my kids were prepared for that. So we explained to them, even before we got rabbits, that some of these rabbits are going to end up on the dinner table. You need to be aware. they're gonna, These aren't pet rabbits. These are meat rabbits. These our meat, well, we talked over and over about these are meat rabbits. And so it was that the day actually came back in December when I was at the livestock auction over in Knightstown and they actually had some rabbits I was interested in buying. But Mackenzie wasn't with me that day. And so I bought these two rabbits and then I texted her. And actually I still have that text message conversation here on my phone. Our conversation went something like this. I texted her. I said, should have come to the auction. I bought something, even though mom told me not to. <sighs> McKinsey's response in all caps, is it a mini donkey? It is not a mini donkey. Neither is the other one I've bought. No donkeys. No donkeys today. Oh. Did you buy a trailer? Did you get something alive? said, I bought two things that are alive. One's a boy, one's a girl, so maybe we'll have babies eventually too. Yay! I think that's as many A's as there are there. Yay. 
And then there is a pause. There's a lull in the conversation. I assume she was thinking through all of this. A few minutes later, she texts me back. Are the bunnies you got meat bunnies? To which I replied, no, dairy bunnies. <laughs> Do you milk dairy bunnies? <laughs> LOL. To which dad replied, only the girl ones. <laughs> oh, okay. And we went on with our day. So, so when we're there outside that church in Newcastle talking about dairy, I had forgotten completely about that conversation. But when she said to this mother, do you have, oh, they're not meat rabbits, they're dairy rabbits. I go, oh, we're going to have to talk about some things. Now, before you start judging me, though, before you start thinking I'm an awful father, I, you should know I'm doing this for her own good and for their own good. I do this for my kids all the time. You know, there are a lot of people in the world who try to pass off things that are obviously false as if they're true, right? We run into them all the time. And I want my kids not to be gullible like that. I want all of my kids not to take what people tell them for granted. I want them to be able to recognize when things are obviously false. So from time to time, when my kids ask something that should be obvious, this is one of my life principles, one of the things I believe with all of my heart, that there's no such thing as a stupid question. They're just stupid people. I don't want my kids to be stupid. So when they ask a question that should be obvious, from time to time I will just make up an answer and see if they notice. It's part of that just teaching them discernment. At least that's what I tell myself. It's teaching them discernment. Only this time she didn't. And so we wound up outside a church in Newcastle having to explain to a co-op mom that no, there really are no such thing as dairy bunnies. This is all just a misunderstanding. So now that you know the context, I suppose you can judge me and decide for yourselves if I'm a horrible father. But before you judge me, know this. Just like to point this out. Jesus did it too. You got your Bibles? Don't have your Bibles? There are pew Bibles. If you don't have pew Bibles, you should have pew Bibles. There are cell phones. There's Version Bible app. Some way or another, find your way to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. That's where the story I want to tell today is. The story is in Matthew chapter 15, and it's also in Mark chapter 7. Matthew chapter 15, Mark chapter 7. While you're turning, there are a couple things. Kids, you're right. There was not a children's bulletin, and there's not yet been a children's sermon. However, I want you to pay attention, and after service, even though there's not a children's bulletin, I have a prize, I have a treat here for every single kid here today. So come see me after service, get something out of the treasure box, okay? First thing, no bulletin. Second thing, second thing, I want to bring you up to speed on this series that we're in. In case you're new, in case you're visiting, maybe you've missed a week, we're in a series called At His Feet. And we're exploring a hypothesis. The idea that I've got in my head and we're trying to kind of explore together is this idea that if we find ourselves at the feet of Jesus, at the feet of Jesus, we can find what we really need. That's the hypothesis for this whole series. At the feet of Jesus, you can find what you really need. And so we're looking at the different stories in the Gospels, all the different people who find themselves at the feet of Jesus, and we're seeing whether or not it's true. Did they really find what they really need? 
If this is your first week with us, if you missed a week, want to get caught up, you can listen to the sermons online at our website, southfieldnaz.com. we got a podcast on, on, on all iTunes, Google Play, all those things. It's in your bulletin. You can catch up on your own time. Today, though, we're in a story in Matthew chapter 15. Before we look at the story itself, though, we probably ought to set this in some context. See, it's not just us. It's not just we who are exploring a, a hypothesis. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself is developing a hypothesis of his own. And I would argue that the thesis in the Gospel of Matthew, the, the thing that Jesus is trying to demonstrate all the way through, is this, that faith, faith is the human response to what God is already doing. Faith is the human response to what God is already doing that allows us to become a part of His covenant community. A little bit simpler maybe way to put it is that being a part of God's promises hinge on this thing Jesus calls faith. Now you might ask yourself, what is faith? Faith is trust. It's really simple. Faith is trust. It's the kind of trust that puts belief. It's not just belief. I think this is true. Faith is the kind of trust that puts belief into action. And faith is what makes us a part of God's covenant community. You might be thinking, what's a covenant? Well, a covenant is a promise, but it's more than just a promise. A covenant is a promise that goes two ways. Both parties have responsibilities. In a covenant, God makes promises to us. What does God promise us in His covenant? Lots of things. He promises us salvation. He promises forgiveness, healing, protection, provision, direction, guidance, discernment, comfort, encouragement, fellowship, and that list go on and on and on. He promises us lots of things. In fact, you could take it all and kind of lump it together. He promises us the kind of life in which He is our God and we are His people. That's His end of the covenant. That's the promise He makes towards us. But a covenant is a promise that goes two ways. Kids, do you hear that? I might even ask you about that later. Covenant is a promise that goes two ways. So what's our part? Under the old covenant, our part was obedience. God begins developing a covenant community in Genesis chapter 17 when He enters into covenant with Abram soon to have his name changed to Abraham. And the promise is there. I will be your God, you will be my people. Listen to how God describes it in Genesis 17, verses 7 and following. God says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants for all the generations to come to be your God. There it is. My covenant. I will be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and to your descendants after you. And I will be their God. That's God's part. What's Abraham's part in this? Verse 9 of chapter 17 in Genesis says, God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep. Keep. To protect. To observe. To obey. You must keep my covenant, 
you and your descendants after you for generations to come. God's part, I'll be your God. Abraham's part, to keep, to obey the covenant. Now, what were God's commands in that covenant? Genesis chapter 17, it's about a ritual. And for Abraham in Genesis chapter 17, the obedience that God demanded was was a ritual obedience. It was the it was the rite of circumcision that God required of Abraham to enter into that covenant. Later on, under Moses, other rituals would be added to it. Rituals like specific holy days that had to be observed. Sacrifices, specific sacrifices that had to be offered. Even things like the very way you wash your hands before you eat a meal. All of them were parts of the covenant that Israel was to keep, to obey. Other commands called for moral obedience. I am the Lord your God. You will have no other gods before me. You will not make for yourself a graven image. You will not take my name in vain. You will remember my Sabbath day and keep it holy. Other commands had to do with how we treat each other. Honor your father and mother. You will not murder. You will not commit adultery. You will not steal. You will not bear false testimony. You will not covet. There's moral obedience involved in that covenant as well. Of course, then there's a large part of the covenant that has to do with the issue of purity. Ritual purity. Rules about what kind of food you're allowed to eat. What kind of clothes you're allowed to wear. What kind of people you were allowed to come in contact with. And so there was an entire covenant built on regulations. Later on, Jewish teachers would identify 613 separate commandments in the law. All of these regulations, and our part of the covenant was to obey, to keep the covenant. Now, long story short, because I don't really have time today for long stories, Long story short, things didn't work too well under that system. So Jesus enters history. Jesus comes along and He seeks to establish a new covenant. Now under this new covenant that Jesus brings, the promises are still the same. I will be your God and you will be my people. In Jesus becomes, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. Surely I am with you to the very end of the age. Those promises are still there. In fact, Paul will say every single promise God has made to us is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. None of God's part of the covenant is, is set aside. God, all of His promises still remain. What's changed in this new covenant is what is required of us. Jesus says under the new covenant, the promises rest on faith, not on obedience. Now I should point out that Jesus doesn't set aside obedience. We're still expected to obey, but, but with Jesus, obedience is part of the promise. It's not a prerequisite, obey and then you get what I have for you. It's have faith and I will help you to obey. I'll give you my Spirit. My Spirit not only will be with you, my Spirit will be in you, and my Spirit will work in you to will and to do everything I require. What we could not do, Jesus promises to do in us through His Spirit. But the covenant rests not on obedience, 
It rests on faith. Now after Jesus, Paul will come along and make the argument that it was about faith all along. After all, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. But that's a whole different sermon and I only got time for one this morning. That's not the theme Jesus is developing yet. This is it. This is it. The hypothesis he's exploring in, in Matthew and all the Gospels is that the promise doesn't rest on obedience. It's not about building hedges around laws. It's not about regulating behavior. It's all about faith. And because it's about faith, suddenly the promises are radically open in a way that they've never been opened before. In the Gospels, people who formerly were excluded because they fell on the wrong side of the rules, people who formerly were excluded because they weren't a part of the right race, people who were excluded because they didn't participate in the right rituals, People who were excluded because they ate the wrong kinds of food and wore the wrong kinds of clothes and worked at the wrong kinds of jobs and hung out with the wrong kind of people. People who formerly were excluded when it was based on obedience are suddenly brought into the circle of grace because it rests on faith. That's good news for us. Because by those old rules, we too were one of those outsiders. But we who are far away have been brought near in Christ. All these people who formerly were excluded are now brought in as Jesus expands the circle of grace on the basis of faith. You can see it in the Gospel of Matthew in the way he uses that word faith. Notice where Jesus sees faith. It is, those of you that have been here for a few weeks, in a slightly different order than Luke tells the story. For Matthew, the first person in whom Jesus sees faith is a Roman centurion who comes to Jesus seeking help for a servant. Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus sees faith all over the place. Jesus sees faith in the faces of some friends who bring a paralyzed man to Jesus laying on a mat. It's seen in the face of a woman who's been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but has faith enough to come and touch just the hem of Jesus' garment. It's seen in the eyes of a pair of blind men who who follow Jesus' entourage. They refuse to give up. They follow Jesus all the way to the house where Jesus is staying, calling out all the way, have mercy on us, Son of God. Until finally, Jesus restores their sight. They all have faith. Notice where faith isn't in Matthew. It's not in the Pharisees, the masters at building hedges around the law. It's not in the teachers of the law, the experts in telling other people what is allowed and what isn't. It's not in the priests, the the masters at observing all the right rituals in all the right ways. Faith isn't there. Faith is is in all these others. People who were on the outside under the old covenant. People who weren't the right race. People who hung out with the wrong kind of people. People who had the wrong kind of diseases. That's where Jesus sees faith. These people who formerly were outside are brought into grace. Grace. Because they've come to the feet of Jesus 
And at the feet of Jesus, they find what they really need. Now we come to Matthew chapter 15. This would be a good opportunity for you to look at the person sitting next to you and say, if all that was introduction, we're going to be here until Father's Day. I'll try not to, but bear with me here. Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew chapter 15, the guardians of the Old Covenant and the guarantor of the New Covenant are on a collision course. Jesus and the Pharisees are about to go head to head. The Pharisees come to Jesus with their typical complaints. Complaints that Jesus' disciples aren't following all the right rituals. In particular, they notice that they don't wash their hands in the right ways before they eat. Everyone knows you got to do it just right. you got to hold it in the water just as long. you got to let the, the water drip off the elbows in just the right. They're not doing it right. Why don't your disciples wash their hands before? It's not about hygiene. It's about ritual. Why don't they wash before they eat? And Jesus goes off on them. There's no other way to say it. He even used, beats them over the head with the Bible. Isaiah chapter... Uh, I don't have the chapter number here. I think it's 23. He quotes out of Isaiah. He says, These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. Pretty harsh rebuke for the Pharisees who are proud of all of their rules. He goes on to say, it's not about all of that outside stuff. It's not about the food you eat or the way you wash your hands. It's not about the outside at all. It's the inside that matters. Not because obedience isn't important. Rather, because obedience is from the inside out. And then in verse 21 of chapter 15, Jesus leaves. He withdraws. He retreats. Matthew tells us he goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is outside of Israel. Jesus leaves Israel and heads off into Gentile country. And while he is there, outside of Israel, a woman seeks him out. Matthew chapter 15, verse 22 says, a Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him, crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Now notice this woman. She is an outsider. She is not a Jew. Matthew says she is a Canaanite woman. She's from the wrong religion. In Mark chapter 7, Mark says she's a Syrophoenician woman. She's from Syria, Phoenicia. Now, the Phoenicians settled not only on, on the Palestinian coast of the Mediterranean, they also settled on the African coast. So by saying Syrophoenician, he's drawing a distinction between over by Tyre and Sidon and down by what we would call Lydia today. She's from Syria, Phoenicia, what now we would call Lebanon. She's from the wrong religion. She's from the wrong race. Two ways, Matthew and Mark are saying the exact same thing. She's not one of us. She's an outsider. Yet she comes to Jesus and addresses Him as Lord, Son of David. 
You think she's heard the story about those two blind guys who refused to give up? Have mercy on me, son of David. Have mercy on me, son of David. They cried out until Jesus finally gave them back their sight. She comes and echoes those very same words. Lord, son of David. Not a very Gentile way to address Jesus. But Lord, she says, son of David, have mercy on me. What could lead her to approach Jesus in that way? A couple things. She's desperate. She has a daughter who is cruelly demon-possessed. It's unusual in the Bible for an adverb to describe demon-possessed, but Matthew uses one here. This is not just demon-possessed. She is badly demon-possessed. She's desperate. But she also has this inkling that if she can get to the feet of Jesus, she'll find what she really needs. So she comes to Jesus and she says, Lord, Son of David, have mercy. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. And so Jesus drives out the demon and sends her home, right? Verse 23. Jesus did not answer a word. I don't know about you, but that seems out of character for Jesus to me. When Jesus does something out of character, we probably better pay attention because this might be important. Jesus did not answer her a word, it says, so, she, so his disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. The implication there is, would you please just give her what she wants so that she will be quiet? I mean, if it was just about sending her away, they could do that themselves. Just ask the parents of those kids that tried to get their kids to Jesus. The disciples were good at sending people away. They just weren't very good at driving out demons yet. So when they say send her away, what they're saying is give her what she wants so that she'll finally be quiet. Notice what Jesus says. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. But the woman refuses to give up. The woman came and knelt before Jesus. You hear that, kids? Knelt. The same word as last week. To prostrate oneself. Get down on your knees. Put your forehead to the ground. She knelt at Jesus' feet. She's finally made it to the feet of Jesus. She knelt at Jesus' feet. And begged, Lord, help me. And she found what she's really looking for at the feet of Jesus, didn't she? Jesus said, go ahead, go in peace. Your daughter is well, right? Verse 26, he replied, It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. I don't know about you, but that kind of disturbs me. Hearing Jesus talk to a woman like that. It's not right. You're just a dog and what I have isn't for you. I want to say, Jesus, how could you? This isn't like you, Jesus. This doesn't fit. Here you have spent the entire gospel showing that the covenant isn't about those old rules. It's not about being the right race. It's not about keeping the right rituals. It's not about hanging out with the right people. The entire gospel is about finding faith in surprising places. The only person up until this point in Matthew's gospel 
that Jesus has commended for having great faith has been a Roman centurion, an outsider, a Gentile. Even in this very chapter, Jesus has just been saying it's not about those external things, it's the internal that counts. Yet here this woman has faith enough to bow at the feet of Jesus and you can't see her faith because she's not an Israelite? Now, even if you didn't have all of that other stuff, even if you were lucky enough to have a pastor who understood you're not supposed to preach this long on Mother's Day and, and skipped all that introduction stuff, even if this story was all you had, we'd still know something was up. Because Jesus says, I'm sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. If that's true, Jesus, why did you leave Israel? You're the one that came to Tyre and Sidon. This whole thing was your idea. We're in Syria, Phoenicia, because you said, let's go, and we went. What do you mean? You were sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. And I have to wonder, if the disciples had responded to Jesus like that, what do you think Jesus would have said? I can't be certain. I personally suspect he would have leaned over with a twinkle in his eye and said to Peter, Dairy bunnies. Okay, maybe not, maybe not dairy bunnies. But you get my point. Jesus is acting completely out of character. He's saying things that don't go along with anything he's done up until this point. This should have been an obvious error to any attentive disciple. And if the disciples had called him on it, it would have demonstrated that maybe they understood. Maybe they actually got the point. But what did the disciples say? Go ahead. It's an open book test. Verses 26 and 27. What do the disciples say? They didn't say a word. They didn't say a word. Jesus said something that ran absolutely counter to everything that He's been saying and everything that He's been doing. And they look at Jesus and they nod their heads and they say, oh, okay, dairy bunnies. I understand. The disciples say nothing. But notice who does speak up. Verse 27. It's the Canaanite woman who responds. Jesus says it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And she argues with him. Verse 27. Yes, it is, Lord. Yes, it is. Because even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Now, not every translation has the disagreement, quite, the contradiction, quite as obviously as the NIV does here. I think the New American Standard says, yes, but. Um, I think the King James Version, in fact, I know the King James Version says, truth, yet. The problem with both of those translations is it's not yes, but. The literal translation is yes, because. This yes isn't a yes of agreement. This yes is contradicting Jesus' earlier no. 
Jesus says, it is not right. And she very literally says, yes, it is right. Because even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from their master's table. She knows there's no such thing as dairy bunnies. She knows that this runs against everything Jesus has been doing. Here are the disciples, these 12 men who've been with Jesus 24-7 for months on end, who were there to see the Roman centurion, who were there to see the friends bring their paralyzed buddy on a mat. These disciples who were there when the woman subject to bleeding touched the hem of his robe. These 12 men who'd been with Jesus through everything didn't understand it. But this Gentile woman, this desperate mother, understands. She knows that the promises don't rest on external things. It's not about being the right race. It's not about keeping the right rituals. It's not about hanging out with the right people. The promise rests on faith. Particularly the kind of faith that's willing to come and bow at the feet of Jesus. It's not right, Jesus says. But she knows better. And she says, oh yes it is. And Jesus commends her for it. Verse 28, Woman, you have great faith. In all of Matthew's Gospel, only two people have great faith. The first was that Roman centurion, a Gentile soldier. The second is this Syrian Phoenician woman. Neither of them are Israelites. Both of them were outsiders by every single standard the Old Covenant set. Yet both of them possess the one thing that Jesus says is essential in the New Covenant. Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And their daughter was healed at that moment. What about us? Maybe you're an outsider by all of those old covenant standards. Maybe you don't wear the right kind of clothes. Maybe you don't eat all the right foods. Maybe you don't keep all the right rituals. Maybe you don't hang out with the right people. Maybe you we're an outsider. Maybe all of this time you've been thinking, maybe all of this time you've bought into that old covenant mindset. I'm the wrong kind of person. These promises don't apply to me. Yet Jesus is doing everything He can to demonstrate just the opposite. The promises don't rest on obedience. Obedience comes later. The promise makes obedience possible. The promise doesn't rest on obedience. The promise rests on faith. Particularly the kind of faith that is willing to come to the feet of Jesus. So what's keeping you from Jesus' feet. 